Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening at the beginning of a new Alan Jones week. Thank you for being with us. You are watching ADH, and yes, I am Alan Jones. And what a political mess we're in, eh? I'll shortly have something to say about the sycophantic treatment of Prime Minister Albanese and the Labor government and the demonisation of Peter Dutton and the Liberals. Suffice to say one thing, those who believe that everything is rosy in the garden of Albanese are in for a hell of a shock. But more of that in a moment. Justifiable controversy over the latest episode in the political career of Lydia Thorpe. Why she would be celebrating a friend's birthday party at a Melbourne strip club is anybody's guess. But then as she leaves, she starts, as you know, shouting at men standing outside. Half the world has seen the pictures, the other half couldn't care less. But it's pretty vulgar stuff, isn't it? Let's have a look at this. Yeah, look, while the language isn't dinner party stuff, it is rightly or wrongly the language used by many who can't intellectually justify their position, so they resort to Lydia Thorpe language. What did she say there? You know what I say to you. You know what I say to you, small penis, small penis. And a man off camera then calls Senator Thorpe a racist dog, language we can do without. Nonetheless, there are many who throw these accusations around about being racist who are themselves profoundly racist. Lydia Thorpe proved that at the weekend. You can't get anything more racist than this. She said, quote, any black man that stands with the effing white little C like that, yous could all go and get F too. You see, that language attributed to the white man is as racist as you'll get. But Lydia Thorpe's not called out. She wasn't finished. Quote, we've been represented all our effing life in this country and you let this little dog speak. Well, the dog was a white man. Repressed all our effing life, eh? I think most Australians are fed up with having these allegations hurled at them. Kevin Rudd offered a legitimate and articulate apology. Not enough. We've had 56 years of continued and concerted government action to address Indigenous disadvantage. Not enough. Taxpayers now provide over $39 billion a year on Indigenous programs, more than is spent on Medicare. Not enough. As a result of government actions and High Court decisions, Indigenous Australians have some form of rights over more than 40% of the land in Australia. And if you've got rights over that land, those Indigenous Australians receive hundreds of millions of dollars in mining royalties each year. Not enough. As Scott Hargraves from the IPA has pointed out, those royalties are more than $230 million in the Northern Territory alone. Not enough. Scott Hargraves, the Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, has written, and I quote, in 2020, there were 3,000, there is on your screen, look at it, 3,273 registered Aboriginal corporations delivering health and other services and making representations to government. More than 1,000 bureaucrats work in the National Indigenous Australians Agency. Not enough. Yet Lydia Thorpe, in her repeated vulgarity, says, we've been represented all our effing lives, we've been repressed, I'm sorry, we've been repressed all our effing lives in this country. And now they want to bring on the voice. Well, it too won't be enough. Of course, Lydia Thorpe is not in favour of the voice. She wants sovereignty. She wants to assert that we don't own the land on which our house stands, even though we've paid a mortgage on it for years. What Lydia Thorpe won't concede and nor will the proponents of The Voice, is that there are thousands of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders who fully participate in the Australian way of life, just like you and me. And then there are agitators and activists 
who want to stir up hatred and implant in the minds of the young that we have stolen this country from them. And as Lydia Thorpe said at 3 a.m. last Sunday morning, we're all effing little white seas and yous can all get effed. Why are political leaders too frightened to stand up to this stuff and say simply, no, you don't own this country and you've got thousands of voices to represent you as it is and where disadvantaged lies, we have for years spent billions of dollars to correct it and it appears that that spending has achieved not much. But remember one other thing. Lydia Thorpe and all the activists that spew this kind of hatred, there are many white disadvantaged families as well. And responsible Australians are quite prepared to put their hands in their pockets to assist all disadvantaged Australians. I think they're entitled to a bit of courtesy in return. I've already made the point that I mustn't be the only person who's growing tired of the sycophantic treatment of the Albanese Labor government by the bulk of the media and the demonisation of Peter Dutton and the Liberals. I'm telling you now that the rot is about to set in and voter revenge will not be far away. How are 10 million middle-income Australians likely to respond when they learn in the May federal budget, only weeks away, that the low and middle-income tax offset will be wiped in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis? Nothing about this before the election. I don't have a problem with the decision, but would Albanese have won the election if this had been announced before the election. It's a tax increase. Some of those 10 million taxpayers will have up to $1,500 less in their pockets. Or will they understand what a pup we were sold at the last federal election almost a year ago? Now remember, you can hardly say that Anthony Albanese won, Morrison lost. As in New South Wales recently, the Liberal brand was a disaster. All those things I warned about re-coronavirus have been borne out. No justification for lockdowns or masks or keeping kids out of school or closing down business. The evidence is emerging. But along the way, the country went broke or near to it. So in the face of a toxic Morrison-led government, along came Albo and the so-called small target. All pretty innocent stuff. What did he promise? Well, nothing much in terms of a political earthquake, so said Albo. Really. Since the election, his government has announced at least 47 reviews, 38 consultation papers, accords and strategies, two summits, a robo-debt royal commission, 51 ministerial roundtables, and an inquiry into Mr Morrison's multiple ministries. But opposition leader Albanese constantly championed the small target strategy to win government. With a still sympathetic media, it apparently doesn't matter that on 97 separate occasions pre-election, Anthony Albanese and Labor promised that average household power bills would be $275 lower by 2025. Yet the last Chalmers budget papers say electricity bills will rise by 50% over the next 18 months, some say as high as 80%, and gas bills by 40%. To justify the broken promise, of course, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer say it's Vladimir Putin's fault. But hang on. Putin's war broke out on February 24. Labor was still making these promises right up until polling day on May 21. And wholesale power prices didn't start to surge in February when Putin invaded, but in April, when the Liddell coal-fired power station in New South Wales shut down a quarter of its capacity. The reality is simple. Bowen is one of the most clueless and arrogant ministers I have seen in all of my time witnessing federal politics. Here we are replacing reliable 24-7 power provided by fossil fuels with unreliable wind and solar power that needs expensive backup for the 70% of the time when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. Well, I'll tell you what happens, which Labor wouldn't tell you before the election. Your bills go north. Why not check your electricity bill? The Liddell coal-fired power station will close entirely on April 28, removing 1,200 megawatts of electricity from the grid. In an understatement, the new Labor Environment Minister in New South Wales, Labor's Penny Sharp said, quote, New South Wales is facing serious energy challenges in years to come, unquote. AGL is Australia's biggest electricity generator. And of course, this fellow Cannon Brooks is flexing his wealth. So AGL have caved in and Liddell will close in 10 days time. 
Liddell has met 10% of the New South Wales power bill in the last year. And then in 2025, Origin Energy's Araring coal plant is scheduled to close down. As well, the Albanese government has capped gas prices. So I suppose investors will keep putting their money into gas. I don't think so to you. I'll tell you what, even with Liddell running last year, baseload power shortages plunged New South Wales into a power crisis. Is this the small target strategy that Mr Albanese was talking about? Where we're going to shut down five power stations across Australia, which contribute 13% of the market's capacity. And then we're told, yes, there will be a shortfall, shortfall if renewable energy projects are slow, quote, are slow to roll out or face delays, unquote, face delays. How the hell will Snowy Hydro 2.0 ever come on stream? to say nothing of the Curry Curry gas project. Let's face it, I have warned about this demonisation of coal-fired power. Liddell now shuts April 28. A rearing to follow, 2025. No Labor leader and those in the Liberal Party who are also on this zero emissions train wreck. None can guarantee that the lights will stay on. So, back to Albo and the small target. Debt. Chalmers keeps going on about the trillions of dollars of debt. That's an untruth. Our net debt is bad, but it's approximately $600 billion. And bad though that is, Albanese and Chalmers are going to add to it. $20 billion for rewiring the nation. $15 billion for the National Reconstruction Fund. $10 billion for the Housing Australia Future Fund, though that's being blocked in the Senate. Then we've got net overseas migration expected to reach about 400,000 this calendar year. Where the hell are they all going to go? Is this part of the small target strategy? Sending rents through the roof? The metaphor of the small target strategy was the promise to reduce power bills by $275 by 2025. And now our electricity prices for business and families make a mockery of that. The young ones, of course, think the voice it's just a simple exercise in Indigenous recognition. Nice thought. Link the past to the present in the Constitution. I'll continue to, explain, to continue to explain why there is nothing simple about this. Forgive me, but young voters have got to wake up. Not only will three million of them with student loans face a big increase in their debt because their hex and help, their loan is indexed to inflation. And you know where inflation has gone. It could reach 7% this year. We'll know on April 26, when the Bureau of Statistics reveals the March quarter inflation figures. But these 3 million young Australians think that the Albanese government is leading them into the Garden of Eden. Do young Australians think that when, according to research by the Grattan Institute, the federal government will be spending about 50 billion more than it's earning through taxes and other revenue, do these young Australians wonder Who's going to pay for this debt down the road? I'll tell you who'll pay. The same young Australians who think that it's honeymoon time for the Albanese government. The voice is a nice idea. I don't think you can forget the Aston by-election and all the euphoria that the Liberals have been buried. The Labor victory lap, though, I'm telling you, is about to be cut very short. And this is my message. A very tough Dutton with simple, Struggle street policies is what this country urgently needs. In New South Wales, those remaining in the Parliamentary Liberal Party after being smashed at the election, when Perrottet, Keane and co looked more like Labor than Labor did, they'll all meet on Friday to elect a new leadership team. Now remember Perrottet, the Liberal leader, at one outing stood beside the member for Manly, James Griffin, who argued that everybody wanted to get rid of coal and gas as soon as possible. Everybody. Perrottet nodded his head. The stupidity is not even worth discussing, but it's straight out of the Labor playbook. And then without any discussion with the Liberal grassroots or the Parliamentary Party, let alone the Cabinet, Perrottet put his arm around Albanese and said he will back the voice. I guarantee I could ask Perrottet five questions on the voice and he wouldn't be able to answer any of them. Certainly not the detail, which Albanese most probably doesn't know about, or else he does know, and he's terrified to tell us. I repeat what I've said before. Are Perrottet and all that lot in the Liberal Party who reckon they'll vote yes for The Voice, are they aware that documents from the original working group released under freedom of information laws reveal that, quote, 
any voice to Parliament should be designed so that it could support and promote a treaty-making process, unquote, and that the treaty must include, quote, a fixed percentage of gross national product, rates, land tax, royalties, unquote. Do all of these liberal wets endorse all that? Minutes of the meetings which fashioned the voice involve changing the names on the map of Australia so that, quote, Aboriginal names for places and things across Australia should be the norm and used by wider Australia, unquote. And the flag, it says, must be changed because, quote, the Australian flag symbolises the injustices of colonisation. Liberal parliamentary members and staff have a hard-won reputation for being lazy. So they fall into the group that believes that the voice is a cosy sentiment about changing the constitution to recognise the role of First Nations people in Australia's history. A lovely feel-good sentiment until you dig into the detail. Perrottet supported all of that without any discussion. Now he's gone and the parliamentary party will meet on Friday to elect a new leadership team. It's not an overstatement to say that there is one person who will be nominating whose views are clearly known and her policies clearly articulated. Her name is Tanya Davies. Perhaps that's why in the West, where the coalition was smashed, Tanya Davies in the seat of Badgerys Creek got a first preference vote of 52%, a two-party preferred of 60.5. She's put a hand up for the deputy leadership of the Liberal Party. The lady whose electorate is the sole Liberal outpost in Sydney's West. But this New South Wales Liberal Party is riddled with factions. I venture to say that the factions want to pretend that this courageous and talented suburban mum of two, who survived the political bloodbath in the West, they most probably don't want to know her. Well, you do, and I do. And she joins me tonight. Tanya, lovely to have you with us. Firstly, confirm you will run for the deputy leadership. Correct, I will. And you say you want to be a champion for the people in Western Sydney. What does that mean? Uh, a couple of things, Alan. Uh, first of all, hello, and thank you for having me on your show. You're most welcome. Um, quite fundamentally, people out here in Western Sydney, they want government out of their back pocket and out of their lives. They want to be left alone to build businesses, to raise their families, to go to work, to just work hard and achieve their goals. Uh, not only for themselves, but to make the life just that much better for their children and grandchildren. And they're sick and tired of governments getting in every nook and cranny of their personal life and telling them what to do and what they can't Absolutely. do. So it's basically standing up for the core liberal values of, of the value and the importance of the individual, of individual freedom, of responsibility, and of allowing people to have a fair go and to um, support initiative and entrepreneurialism. Um, and not try and keep people locked into what some elites may think is as a lifestyle that the elites think we all should live like. You're the only Liberal left. I mean, this is so simple, isn't it? All Tanya Davies is doing is articulating what once were Liberal values. She said small business, she says family life, she says freedom of speech, do these things with compassion. That was once exactly what Liberals believed in, but they've all gone to the left. I mean, Tanya Davies, the woman you see now, think about this is the only Liberal left standing in Western Sydney. The only one. The brand was trashed and your Tanya is seeking support from colleagues for the deputy leadership. What response have you had? Um, I've contacted a number of my colleagues already out of courtesy to let them know um, that I'm seeking their support. Um, I've had a lot of positive feedback. Um, there's a couple who um, are less enthusiastic uh, which I understand that uh, because of the, the, I guess, the alliances within the Liberal Party, to put it in a very um, polite way. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I represent what I think are true Liberal values and I think we need to have people who are speaking up and believing and championing Liberal values. We cannot continue to follow Labor um, cloaked in a, a Liberal brand um, because the electorate's too smart for that. They will smart. punish us. I remember during coronavirus. I remember during coronavirus, this lady you're looking at here now was opposed to the way Western Sydney was being treated. That was lock the place down, shut down business, stop kids from going to school. Now, firstly, Tanya, that was your position. Firstly, tell us 
how much damage did that do? Because in relation to children, and you and I have spoken about this many times, not going to school, not being able to socialise with their friends, it could well be a while before we know the real damage, couldn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what scares me even more than that, Alan, is that I don't think there's a government agency or even the new government that has an absolute interest in tracking and in monitoring the impact that the lockdowns and all of the COVID reaction has had on our young people. Uh, we even have um, stories coming back from mums of, of young toddlers um, who don't know how to smile because all they've seen are adults behind masks for so long. So we have significant issues that I hope the government who are now running the show will actually have an Mm. honest and transparent look Mm. at and monitor and track these issues so that we can get in and bring in intervention where it's needed. Mm. I think we won't know the true impact for many years to come. No, I agree. And you, you would want to prosecute those issues. How amazing, though, that you got into trouble when Berejiklian was the leader for attending a rally outside Parliament House opposing vaccine mandates. Now, the research is coming in and it's clear you were right. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci led the coronavirus charge in America. The world followed. Scientific method was abandoned. Robust debate was scorned. Freedom of speech was crushed. You questioned all of this at the time, didn't you, and got into trouble? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ridiculed. Um, poked fun at, um, told to be quiet, threatened on Facebook to be deplatformed, like many, many people across the world experience. Um, you know, when you think to yourself that Australia was a little bit behind this pandemic compared to other, other countries, we were in a prime position to look and to watch and learn what other countries were experiencing and to adjust our response accordingly. Um, but all we did was just copy, copy and paste, copy and paste. Whatever happened overseas, we would do here. Yet we, I don't know why, that's probably a whole nother discussion, why they weren't looking and watching and learning from those who were six months ahead of the mm. pandemic than we were. Mm. Um, there was there was evidence that there were lots of other treatments, not just if you catch COVID, stay home, and if you get really, really sick, then go to hospital. There were actually treatments available. We now know that to be the case because the federal government are now supplying those antiviral treatments to people in key vulnerable cohorts. Why weren't they made available at the very beginning of this whole issue? Why were we all forced to go down to vaccines only? Your point is proven. Tanya Davies is proven from the recent statistics from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the death toll, think about this, for 2022, an extra 25,235 Australians in 2022 died unexpectedly. That is the biggest increase, 25,235 extra died unexpectedly, the biggest increase in mortality since the Spanish flu of 1919, and more than half of those deaths 15,000 weren't caused by the virus. Now, of course, as you know, people with heart disease, people with lung disease, people with brain tumours, they couldn't get treatment. Everything was coronavirus and all the rest was abandoned. But Tanya, should someone be asking what were the causes of these deaths? Absolutely. And Alan, the um, excess deaths statistics are actually repeated in many other countries globally. This isn't just a unique feature no. to Australia. We, we must, absolutely must examine why these people died when they really shouldn't have died. We've, yeah. I've had statisticians, um, statisticians say that this is a, a sigma six level in terms of statistics, mm. which is, uh, in terms of plain speak, a catastrophic result. That should be cause for any government official to delve into why are all these people dying? We need to know why so that we can begin to change whatever's happening um, or, or educate ourselves as to stop from this happening again. It's critical. It is critical. There are many people, Tanya, we'll finish up here, but there are many people who want to bury the Liberal Party. You're simply saying... Let's go back to our core values. That's what you've articulated in Badgerys Creek, and we've seen the result there, a 52% primary vote. Core values, I mean, you always speak, I love it the fact you speak in simple language and the bus driver, the people in the struggle street can understand you. How would you describe those core values? It's about respecting people to live their life as they so choose, to give parents the right to raise the children as they see fit, 
to get ideolo ideology and radical experimental thinking and beliefs out of our education system to protect children, to actually teach children what they need to learn for a successful life, not just maths and English, but practical life skills such as money. How do you solve conflict? How do you um, build good friendships? Basic basic tools that enable our young people to build successful lives have to be supported by governments. We need to also support small business. One of the things that concerns me greatly is this rush, this absolutely mindless rush to renewable energies that is actually raising the cost of energy so much that it's preventing small businesses small businesses from, from running. It's actually preventing families and pensioners from being able to either put the heater on or put the air conditioning on. We have to we have to step back from that crazy rush and actually help our community transition in that direction. Transition in a way that's not going to cost businesses where they don't have to shut their door. It's not going to make our families and our communities live in poverty because we're rushing to this renewable energy source. Mm. We have to support our community. Sure. We have to respect our community and allow people the right to live their own life without government dictating everything that they have to speak and everything that they have to believe. See, when you're viewing and listening to this woman, you can tell us she reeks of sincerity. I can tell you that when this woman walks through the streets of her electorate, she's mobbed by voters. They sing her praises. I get correspondence. I'll get correspondence now having interviewed her tonight. I mean, young people, women, young people and women, I mean, the votes the Liberal Party has lost. And we could talk about that on another day. They've abandoned the Liberal Party. But what encourages me to support a person like Tanya Davies is the comment that she made. She said, I stood by my community side, even if it was against my own government. They want an MP who fights for them. Well, we'll find out on Friday whether that stand has been the, to the detriment of Tanya Davies' future. Listen, good luck. You're a courageous and decent lady and the Liberal Party desperately needs people of your ilk at the top. I hope you're successful on Friday. And whether you are or not, we'll talk again, Tanya. Lovely to hear your views. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for your time. Good there night. you are. Great woman, that Tanya Davies. When, when COVID was sweeping through communities worldwide during the harsh Western Sydney lockdowns, Tanya Davies suggested to her party the implementation, you know, that rapid antigen testing that we all, well, some, we still have to do, as an alternative to shutting the whole place down. She was laughed at. Six months later, it was being done everywhere, every day. But several MPs, because the way politics works, told her, wink, wink, nod, nod, we agree with you, Tanya. And they were hearing pleas from their community to take a stand. They didn't. They're no longer in office. Tanya Davies, the state Liberal member for Badgerys Creek. I spoke earlier about the language of Lydia Thorpe. The only provocation for that language would be her racist view that white people are cheating her out of, in her view, her rightful ownership of this country. That's what she's been about. She won't vote for the voice. She won't vote for a treaty. She wants ownership. And the young ones who think that the alteration of the constitution is just a simple feeling, it's a good exercise about linking our past with our present. I think the young ones need a lesson about what the detail of all of this means, which is the reason Anthony Albanese won't give us the detail. But some of us have dug it out. I've mentioned many times, I'm going to say it again, the corporates who've joined the conga line of supporters, along with sporting bodies and others, would have no clue about the detail. But they're happy to sign a blank cheque. Eminent people in the Liberal Party, likewise. Well, I'm not signing any blank cheque, and I urge that you don't either. But just on language, Mark Latham has been vilified from one end of the country to the other for comments he made about the state MP Alex Greenwich. When those comments were made by Mark Latham, I wrote to him. I argued they were unacceptable and I urged him to apologise. But let's remember one thing. The comments that provoked the Latham response, unacceptable though his response was, the comments that provoked it were extremely provocative and hurtful, I'm sure, to Mark Latham. You might recall Mark Latham had been asked to speak at a Sydney church where Mark Latham was giving a speech about religious freedom and parental rights. There was a scene by protesters outside the church. The New South Wales MP Alex Greenwich proceeded to describe Mark Latham as, quote, extremely hateful, unquote, 
and dangerous, and quote, a disgusting human being. No one condones the Mark Latham response to that. It was homophobic and carried extreme potential to offend other Australians. But Alex Greenwich should not have been allowed to describe Mark Latham as a disgusting human being. I've known Mark Latham for many years. I've seen him do very good work for many people. His forensic examination of the education system in New South Wales is immensely beneficial to many children for whom parents hold high expectations of what the education system can do to them. But we're in the midst of this acrimonious voice debate. Well, it's not a debate. If you say no to the voice, you have to be ready for a stream of abuse of language to be directed at you. And we saw that last week. Marcia Langton is the Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. It is said that she's one of Australia's top intellectuals. She is co-chair of the senior design group on The Voice. Back to Mark Latham. In March 2018, Professor Marcia Langton, an Indigenous professor, supposedly one of Australia's top intellectuals, tweeted of Mark Latham, quote, you so deserve a slow, painful death and humiliating obituaries, e.g. Australia celebrates as white supremacist, homophobic, far right-wing arsehole finally dies. Australians look forward to a life without hate, unquote. I can't recall anyone condemning Marcia Langton. I repeat, Mark Latham responded to Alex Greenwich. He was provoked. He's copped this stuff for years. That does not justify the response that he made. Nothing can justify that. But I'll tell you something. The hatred directed at Mark Latham for many years requires from him a very thick skin for him not to respond. Yes, there was an ugliness about Mark Latham's language, but ugly language is not the sole property of Mark Latham. Who is going to call the likes of Marcia Langton, Lydia Thorpe and Alex Greenwich into line? You know the answer? No one. I often repeat the axiom which I used when working for Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser. When you're sick of saying it, it's only then that the electorate is starting to listen. Now, the polls would suggest a continuing love affair with Anthony Albanese, mainly because Albo smiles, he has his picture taken with world figures, he says all the motherhood things, an engaging bloke. But we're not running a popularity contest here. This is the future of Australia, which is at stake. Policy matters. What has the Albanese government done since May last year to improve our future? Quickly, come on, off the top of your head, I'll stop. Name one thing. One thing. Now, I've got some bright people around me and I challenged them about this today. They couldn't name anything. They did know that the Albanese government was in love, of, in love with renewable energy and demonises fossil fuels. But that day of reckoning is coming, I'm telling you now. They know that Albo and co said, vote for us and you're voting for a better world. You'll walk through the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Albo. But they've ordered Albanese government at least 47 reviews, 38 consultation papers and accords and strategies, two summits, the Robodebt Royal Commission, Bill Shorten's doing something there, 51 ministerial roundtables, and then an inquiry into Scott Morrison's multiple ministries. But electricity and gas prices, they're placing families and businesses at risk. Basically, investors have got other countries to go to where this escalation in energy prices doesn't occur. Now, as I said earlier, the Liddell coal-fired power station will close on April 28, a couple of days away, a rearing in 2025, because they demonise fossil fuels. Five power stations across Australia are going to shut down. 13% of the market's capacity. Snowy Hydro is a joke and an expensive joke. But of course, Chalmers keeps telling people how tough things are to cover his backside for not being able to produce a budget in May, which will relieve any of the cost of living pressures. We know Labor said before the election on 97 separate occasions that average household power bills would be lower under Labor, and they actually quoted a figure, didn't they? $275. But if they said that 97 times, how many times have they said that the massive increase in energy costs is the fault of Vladimir Putin. I'm sorry, it's another lie. Putin's war broke out on February 24. 
As I said earlier tonight, Labor was still making these promises right up until polling day on May 21. Bowen, I repeat unapologetically, is an unacceptable danger to our economic future. We are replacing reliable 24-7 power provided by fossil fuels with unreliable wind and solar, which need expensive backup for the 70% of the time when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. Do you think if Albanese had told us before the election that there'd be a tax on superannuation, that he would have been elected? Do you think if he told us before the election that 10 million middle-income Australians in the May federal budget would lose their low and middle-income tax offset in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis, that Albanese would have been elected? In other words, some of those 10 million taxpayers will have up to $1,500 less in their pockets. Do you think if Australians were told that before the election, that Albanese would have been elected? I'm saying wake up, Australia. Daniel Wilde joins me from the Institute of Public Affairs. As you know, he's articulate and informed. And as well as all of the above, we're now being told to back the voice because nothing has been done for Indigenous Australians. Let's go to Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. They would argue vehemently against that proposition. Daniel, thank you for your time. Surely this is a myth that nothing has been done. Alan, great to be with you as always. And you're right, uh, there's been a lot done to try and help Indigenous Australians over decades, whether it's the dozens of government agencies we have in place at the local, state and federal level, or the hundreds of millions of dollars that we spend each and every year trying to improve outcomes on the ground. And I think it's a tragedy what's happening in remote parts of the country, in the Alice or other parts of Queensland, Western Australia, the APY lands in South Australia. But the reality is that the money and the resources do not get to the people who need it on the ground because we're tangled up in Canberra-based and city-based bureaucracies and city-based politicians who don't spend any time out on the ground. You know, Anthony Albanese spent a few hours in the Alice uh, for some photo ops and then spent three days at the tennis. And, uh, you know, it's just another example of how those in the inner cities are out of touch. They might be well-meaning, but they're out of touch and they're not able to improve outcomes. Meanwhile, we're spending more money than ever before, but outcomes are worse and worse. See, Daniel, you know, we talk about Indigenous Australians. Why do we lump all Indigenous Australians together? Because as your Institute of Public Affairs has rightly argued, as have I, there are only 20% of Indigenous Australians outside the workforce and the familiar social structures of modern life. I mean, it's those 20%, isn't it, for whom social outcomes are often disastrous. But as you have said, and rightly, there have been decades of sincere and well-resourced efforts to address them. Now, it's, it's, it's an insult. It's an insult to hardworking taxpayers in Australia to say, you've done nothing for us. Well, you're exactly right, Alan. We know it's only about, as you say, 20% who are suffering acute disadvantage. And this is mostly in remote parts of the country. It's a question of place, not of race. If you are in a very remote part where you don't have economic or social services or infrastructure, then you are going to struggle. And we know that there's three key components of any flourishing community, jobs, schools and law and order. If you don't have those three things in your community, then there will be breakdown. And that's what we're seeing in the Alice and other parts of, of the country. So uh, you're spot on. It's about 20% that need the mm. help, yet they're not getting it because it's tangled up in city-based bureaucracy. Quite. I mean, your executive director, Scott Hargraves of the IPA, has said another false premise is this business that nothing has been done. Now, I've made this point many times. Young people in particular and others are brainwashed into believing that Indigenous Australians have no rights, no assets, no voice. Daniel, let's start with the almost 40 billion, 40,000 million a year spent on Indigenous programs. That's a greater sum than is spent on Medicare. Well, you're quite right, Alan. The, the sum is eye-watering and Australians are not told the extent of the generosity and the extent of government involvement and programs and spending on Indigenous communities. Uh, what we need is not necessarily more money. You know, if more money would solve the problems, I'd be in favour of it. We'd all be in favour of it because we want to help out the people that are in need, but more money does not solve the problems on the ground. And another Canberra-based bureaucracy with the voice to Parliament is not going to solve it. It's just going to be another layer of, of bureaucracy 
in Canberra with the same inner city academics that have got us into the problems to start yeah. with. Yes. And that's why I think what Peter Dutton has yeah. been saying about we don't need this elite no. voice in Canberra, we need something on the ground is exactly right. Yeah, and they're not elected. The voice is not elected. There's be 24 of them selected. Indigenous people won't have any say. 24 selected. Now, as the IPA, Daniel's IPA, Institute of Public Affairs has pointed out, and they do wonderful research work, as a result of government actions and high court decisions, Indigenous Australians have some form of rights, and I've made this point a thousand times, but you've got to keep saying it, over more than 40% of the land in Australia. That point's never made, 40%. I suppose is it racist to say that? But it's also true that holders of land rights receive hundreds of millions of dollars in mining royalties each year. Daniel, the holders of the land rights are Indigenous Australians. What happens to those millions well, of dollars? Well, that's a good question, Alan, and you've been belling the cat on this for, for many, many years. Um, look, one of the key problems with the land that they're entitled to under, under native title is in many cases, they don't actually own the land in the, in the way that you or I can. You know, they can't uh, build their own house there. They can't undertake their own economic development. It's tied up in all kinds of government bureaucracy and red tape. And again, it gets back to this key issue. Well, what's the point in having all this land if you can't have proper development on it, if you can't have, uh, you know, jobs and schools and all the creation of the infrastructure yeah. on this land? Um, and there's another key point, Alan, which is that, look, the land rights issue is one of, well, we've done all this for Indigenous people, and I think it's quite rightly so. Uh, but when is it going to stop? When will the activists say enough is enough? Yes. Um, when will reconciliation be achieved? Um, don't forget, if we have the voice to Parliament, yep. it won't stop there. No. It'll be a treaty. It'll yep. be reparations. It'll be something else. They never, ever stop. That's exactly right. You see, in the Northern Territory alone, those mining royalties each year amount to about $230 million. And those royalties go to Indigenous Australians. I don't know what happens to the money. $230 million in the Northern Territory alone. And now they say Indigenous Australians must have a voice in the Constitution. Now, Daniel and I have said the number of times he's been on this program, a race-based injection into the Constitution should, no one should condone. And let me make this point. Daniel, I, I make this point, I make it again, and I've heard Barnaby Joyce make the point. If you oppose this voice, if you oppose this, you are not racist. You are preventing racism entering the Constitution. It's when you vote yes that you are a racist. You are enshrining a race-based change into the Constitution. Daniel, I think that point needs to be made over and over again, doesn't it? Well, it does, Alan, and I think Barnaby Joyce has been very eloquent on this issue, as have you, uh, pointing out that this is inserting a racial clause in our constitution. It's going to brick in uh, a racial bureaucracy, undoing all of the work we've done over the last five decades since the 1967 referendum, uh, which, yeah. of course, was there to get rid of references to race, uh, to make us more united and more whole as a nation. You know, it's kind of funny, back in 1967, um, if you were opposed to removing references to race, in the Constitution, you were labelled a racist. Today, if you're opposed to adding references to race in the Constitution, you're called a racist. Brilliant point. And that goes to show how our, how our society has been Brilliant inverted. Point. We should be moving to a colourblind Brilliant society point. so we're all equal in the Constitution rather than being divided. Outstanding. And look, just before we go, your organisation, the Institute of Public Affairs, and I've made this point again, but we've got to start repeating this. In the year 2020, there were 3,273 registered Aboriginal corporations delivering health and other services and making representations to government. 3,273 and more than 1,000 bureaucrats working in the National Indigenous Australians Agency. Daniel, what is all this nonsense about the need for a voice? Well, I want to know what these people are doing. I mean, what, what we're seeing is worse outcomes in remote communities, Indigenous communities. So what, are these bureaucrats being held to account? Where is the money going? Is there going to be an audit of, of the money and, and the resources? I mean, look, if these, if these bureaucracies are helping, well, then great, we should support them. But clearly they're not helping. And I just don't see how another Canberra-based bureaucracy with the voice to parliament is going to help people on the ground as you identified or divide us by race, is going to lead to a decade of litigation in the High Court. And that's mm -hmm. what former 
former High Court Justice in Callanan said. And it's also going to be involved in everything mm. because Indigenous Australians are Australians. There is That's not it. one policy That's issue it. that The Voice will not That's be involved right. in. So this That's is right. a massive, massive Absolutely. overreach. Absolutely. The Reserve and, Bank. And the key point, Alan, once it's in the Constitution, you can't get rid of That's it. That's it. And the Reserve Bank wants to jack up interest rates. So does The Voice have a say in that? The Treasurer wants to bring down a budget. The Voice has got to be consulted. And Indigenous Australians weren't going to say on the laws that affect them, just an unrepresentative group of Indigenous activists, 24 of them, selected, not elected. We've got to keep at it, Daniel. Look, it's great to talk to you. We could talk all night, but thank you for your, thank you for your time tonight. We keep ploughing on. Alan, always a pleasure. Thank you. There you are, Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. If Paris still exists by 2024, after the disgraceful rioting and vandalism that have taken place in recent weeks, if Paris hasn't been utterly defaced, then an Olympic Games will take place. For an athlete, being chosen to represent your country at the Olympics is the pinnacle of sporting achievement. It provides what's only available to an Olympian, a remarkable and unforgettable Olympic experience. But if the Australian Olympic Committee has its way, that will no longer be the case for Australian athletes. I remember prior to Tokyo facing a global pandemic, which itself was characterised by government alarmism, and as we are now learning dishonesty, the word together was added to the official Olympic slogan of faster, higher and stronger. But as Julian Linden wrote at the weekend, it was a cute gesture to reassure everyone dealing with COVID that the biggest sporting festival on the planet would be the beacon of hope that things would eventually return to normal, unquote. Well, as Julian wrote also at the weekend, not everyone got the memo. Wokeism has overtaken the Australian Olympic Committee. The nanny state has raised its head to the abject detriment of our athletes. Put simply, the AOC has ordained that athletes will be banned from staying in the Olympic village once their events are over. Go home, boot them out of the village and let them fend for themselves. Of course, they can stay in Paris if they choose at their own expense, and they can then return for the closing ceremony. But for the period that the athlete is booted out, within 48 hours of the athlete's event finishing, the athletes will pay their own costs, and if they so choose, they can come back for the closing ceremony. For some athletes, like for example, the men's rugby sevens, their competition ends the day after the opening ceremony. Get out of the village. And if you want to hang around to return for the closing ceremony, you'll face a two-week bill, and at Olympic time, even a grimy hotel room could cost you $600 a night. Matt Carroll, the CEO of the Australian Olympic Committee, says that everyone understands it. He says, it's not for the wowsers, we're actually doing it for the athletes who are still competing, unquote. And the AOC says, there is evidence to prove that booting the athletes out of the village once their events are over, will benefit the health and performance of the entire team because they won't be distracted by any party goers. You see, the argument is that Olympians are renowned for some wild celebrations and that Australians are never far from the action. But don't we have a person with the pompous title of chef de mission? That's the person, man or woman, who manages the team. So if you're booting athletes out once they've finished competition because you can't control their behaviour after that, what on earth is the job of the chef de mission? Quite frankly, the athletes should go on strike. James Magnusson is a former world record holder for the 100 metres freestyle for men. And he's right when he said that everyone who makes the Australian team deserves to have the full Olympic experience. And James says, quote, and that includes staying in the village for the closing ceremony and supporting their teammates, unquote. Magnuson is right when he argues, quote, being an Olympian is not just about winning medals. It's a rare achievement that deserves to be properly celebrated no matter what athletes' results are. He said most athletes only ever get to an Olympic Games, so just making the team is the reward for a lifetime of hard work. They should be allowed to soak up every moment. Then James Magnuson speaks as a swimmer. I quote, swimmers already can't go to the opening ceremony because we start competing the next day. So they wheel us in, he says, with no opening ceremony, straight into the competition pool, and always, he said, with very lofty expectations. And then he says, the moment we're finished, 
rather than letting our hair down and relaxing and celebrating and feeling like we're part of the greater Australian Olympic team, you get kicked out of the village on your bike. Says Magnuson correctly, I know they're saying that you can still go to the closing ceremony because there's an option to stay around Paris, but based on what my friends and family have told me about trying to find affordable accommodation in an Olympic city, their chances for Paris are Buckley's and none, unquote. Now remember, these athletes at an Olympic Games are providing entertainment worldwide. They don't get paid a brass razoo. Just imagine Elton John singing for millions around the world and getting nothing. Yet if you take swimming, historically, we produce the best of the best. So what this blazer brigade on the AOC, with all sorts of fringe benefits, oh yeah, they have the best airlines, the best hotels, the best cars, the best transport, the best tucker, the best entertainment, they get the lot for free. And they're saying to the swimmers, no opening ceremony, because you've got to be your best when you dive in tomorrow. And when you jump out, forgive the Australian language, but they're then told to piss off. The once in a lifetime experience is neutered and the athletes are entitled to feel they are being used. Grab us the medals, send that Australian flag up the pole in victory, and then goodbye. No chance to support your teammates, no chance to meet athletes from other countries. Get out of the joint. Again, as James Magnuson says, towards the end of his career, he and his athlete friends were encouraged to support other athletes in the Olympic team, whether it was going to the basketball to support the boomers or going to the soccer or the beach volleyball. He said it was an important part of being in an Australian team because when it's an Olympics on foreign soil, some of our athletes, he says, have little crowd support. Well, I've had a bit to do with international teams and international athletes. This decision by the AOC is a disgrace. As things stand in Paris, Australian athletes will have to vacate the village within 48 hours of their events finishing. Matt Carroll, the AOC chief executive said, I've spoken to a few of the athletes and everyone understands. So a few of the athletes speak for everyone. They'd be terrified to disagree. That is simply not credible. You mean athletes? will put their hand up and say, I'll compete, and when I finish, you'll boot me out, and I think that's terrific. That is simply not credible. It's another case of sporting administrators, the Blazer Brigade, taking all the benefits for themselves and using the athletes along the way. Well, the Olympic movement is funded by a lot of taxpayers' money. The government, on behalf of the taxpayers, should intervene and see that this decision is overturned. Now let's go to Piggy Grandy in America, the former executive assistant, as you know, to the outstanding American president, Ronald Reagan. The Trump story still dominates with many legal experts though, in disbelief as to what has happened. Now we have to remember that this prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, ran on a platform of getting Trump, essentially to help defeat Trump when he might run against the head of the Democratic Party in the next presidential election. Just before we get to that, now, I've been around a bit, as you know, and I've seen everybody that's known in politics here and internationally. In fact, when I worked for Prime Minister Fraser, we had to go right around the world meeting the American president, the British prime minister, the German chancellor, the French president to determine a response to the invasion of Afghanistan. Now, I'm saying that only because I've seen everybody, I think, over many years. I find it incomprehensible that this man you're about to hear now, incomprehensible in two fronts. This man, in a titular sense, that is, his title is President of the United States, and that's the leader of the free world. I find it incomprehensible that he can be that, and is apparently on the brink of announcing that he will run again. Now, have a look at this. It's incomprehensible, mumbo-jumbo, a bumbling statement, which I think ends with him saying, let's go lick the world, let's get it done. I needed to play the tape several times before I could discern that that was what he was saying. This is President Biden in Ireland when really he should be in an aged care home. Listen to this. So thank you all, God bless you all. Let's go, let's go lick, lick the world, let's get it done. What? Peggy, 
Peggy, I'm sorry, he is your president and our leader of the free world. What an awful indictment of the democratic process, Peggy. Well, incomprehensible is right, Alan. And what a disaster that Ireland trip was for him. And not only sad, but dangerous for the world. You know, here's a man who goes abroad and he is incomprehensible. People can't understand what he's saying. We see it for what it is. And it would be funny if it weren't so sad and really dangerous. You know, his trip to Ireland was a disaster. He keeps saying he's running for president, but he hasn't announced it yet. And then his own White House backs it up, backtracks on it. And so it's really sad that this is what America is stuck with. And we look at what he has done in the past two years, and I shudder to think what the next two years will look like under uh, this absolutely. man's Just back to, and I'll come to some of that in a moment. Uh, just back though to Trump, and one of America's finest lawyers, not a Trump supporter, Alan Dershowitz, has called the arraignment of Trump, quote, an extreme example of, quote, the politicization of the criminal justice system. He described this development in relation to Trump as, quote, very dangerous for America. Peggy, things seem to have gone silent, though there is a trial scheduled, I understand, for October 2. What is the latest? Well, the timeline, as I understand it coming up, is that in by early August, the Trump team has an opportunity to file any motions. And that, I believe, will include the motion to dismiss the case altogether. We're not expecting that that will happen. But the next time he's expected to appear in New York in court is early December. You know, the judge has said that he would like to get this started and, you know, hit start um, taking it to trial in January. But the Trump team has said that's impossible because they still haven't received all the documents they need to know what the charges are against the president. Mm. And so where does this put us? It puts us either early or spring of 2024, right in the middle of the presidential campaign. This is exactly what they want it to be. They want it to be a distraction. But as we're seeing from the numbers and from the fundraising, as much as they try to make this a detriment to him, it continues to be a benefit yes, to him I mean, politically. I mean, when you have this fellow Dershowitz saying, uh, and he's made many comments about this, another quote, this is a scandalous misuse of the criminal justice system. Now, this is not a, a Democrat supporter. This is not a Republican supporter. And far from being a Trump supporter, he's anything but. He said it will create a terrible precedent in which other prosecutors will go after people of the opposing party. Now, Peggy, that's where we are, surely, unless someone calls the dogs off. Is there any chance of that? Well, they're sure going to try in court, but we don't anticipate that that will happen. And you're right. This is a political persecution. It's not a legal prosecution. And unfortunately, this is something that the Constitution should protect against. It should protect his right to innocence um, until he's proven guilty. We saw that last week Nancy Pelosi tweeted that he was basically guilty until proven innocent. That's yeah. not how the system yeah. works either for Donald Trump or his supporters. And so this is going to continue to be a distraction from the real issues that New Yorkers and but, Americans care about. But, but There's Peggy, a lot of problems out there. This is not yeah, one of them. Not one of them. But surely this is a measure. Now, let me ask you this, of how much the Democrats fear Donald Trump. I'm just wondering, do they know something about the last presidential election that we don't know? Well, I think we all know a lot about the last presidential election that we don't admit to. And to that point, as we're looking at the next election ahead of time, as a conservative, I wonder and hope if we've done enough to protect our election integrity. We want our elections to be free and fair, safe and secure. We want it to be easy to vote and hard to cheat. And I am not confident, nor are a lot of no. people, that we have put the proper protections yes. in place going into 2024. Yeah, let me just say this to our viewers. I mean, you've got a country in Central America, El Salvador. Now, in the late 19th and mid 20th centuries, it endured chronic political and economic instability characterized by coups, revolts, a succession of authoritarian rulers, El Salvador ranks 124th amongst 189 countries in the Human Development Index. Now, their president, Nayib Bukele, says rightly that America can no longer criticise banana republics for arresting the main opposition candidate. Peggy, surely this man is right. And he says, 
America can no longer use democracy as a foreign policy tool. That's where we are. Unfortunately, he's absolutely right. These are banana republic tactics, and we never thought we would see them employed, deployed here in the United States of America. But that's where we're at. And so he's not far from the truth. And this is exactly why our enemies don't fear us. And unfortunately, our allies don't trust us anymore either, because they see the hypocrisy coming out of our political system. They know we have a constitution in place which should provide protections to all people. And then we see these political charades being pulled by the legal system. The government is weaponized against people like Donald Trump and people who support him. And these are things that we unfortunately never thought we would yes. see here in the United States. Well, see, Peggy, in Australia right at the moment, we've got a lot of divisive issues here. One in particular, this thing, the voice. Now, I'm just wondering if we're drawing a long bow here because what happens in America invariably finishes up happening in many parts of the world. We've gone through a period where everything gives the impression of destroying patriotism destroying love of country and destroying Western economies. And we've got things like gender fluidity, critical race theory, climate change. And in this way, the Western democracies are weakened. Schools are filled with propaganda. And now we have Trump, the principal enemy of all of these cultural changes. And those changes are headed by the Biden family, the Hunter Biden laptop, suggestions of access and influence in Washington being sold to foreign powers, especially Beijing. Peggy, Trump threatens all of this. Is this the concern that Democrats have in relation to Trump? Of course, they got to look at four years of the Donald Trump presidency and they fear four more years of it. They saw that he exposed the deep state for what it was. He exposed the corruption in some of our very halls of government. And they're afraid he's going to come back and continue on the quest to put America first. And that's where America belongs. We should have a president who puts America first. You know, Joe Biden went into office saying he was going to be the great unifier. And what has he done? He's divided and destroyed everything. You gave quite a list, but he's destroying the very fabric of society. He's destroying our economy. He's completely destroyed any sense of sovereignty or our borders. And so the world fears, especially America's enemies, they fear Donald Trump coming back into the White House and restoring all of that yeah. to putting I America mean, in its rightful place of leadership on the world See, stage. I've, I've said many times, Peggy, the metaphor of all of this was when Trump pulled America out of the Paris Climate Accord, which we've seen in Australia weakens our economy, demonising fossil fuels, coal and gas, the source of our economic strength and economic wealth. And of course, that then strengthened China's economic position in the world. Back to Alan Dershowitz, Peggy. Now, this man is America's most celebrated constitutional and criminal lawyer, a confirmed Democrat. He described what's happened to Trump as, quote, the worst abuse of prosecutorial discretion that he has seen in 60 years of legal practice. We'll see where that goes. Peggy will keep us posted. Peggy, I want to ask you, though, before we go, what do we make of the leaking of hundreds of pages of classified US intelligence documents, which reveal awkward details about the war in Ukraine and possible American efforts to spy on other nations, including Israel and South Korea? This is a 21-year-old National Guardsman who was arrested on Friday, and it's being described as the biggest breach of US intelligence material since Edward Snowden released millions of documents a decade ago. Peggy, how could this bloke, 21, be overseeing an online group named Thug Shaker Central, where 20 to 30 people, mostly young men and teenagers, came together over a shared love of guns, racist online memes, video games, and sophisticated intelligence authorities didn't know what this lot were up to? Well, we're seeing exactly what happens when the military puts the importance of pronouns before protecting the American people and protecting our sovereignty. And, you know, there's over 3 million people apparently with security clearances. That doesn't mean that they should have access to things like this information. Yeah. But 
our our military is woefully behind um, a lot of the world and behind even young people these days because they're focusing on the wrong priorities at the top. You know, this young man, we don't know whether he hacked the information or leaked information that he actually had access to, but regardless, we should have protections in place. We apparently know that he was some sort of a, a tech expert, and so he may have had control to accessing that information from a tech standpoint. So all the details are still coming out, but the Pentagon has certainly taken its eye off the ball. This is what happens when you hire people that check diversity boxes sometimes instead of hiring them for competencies. And this is the result. So it's sad and it's scary that this was released by somebody who was supposedly on the inside. Absolutely. Uh, Peggy, all a manifestation of a Biden administration, all of this completely out of control, not in charge and people doing as they like to the detriment of America and the rest of the world. Great to talk to you, Peggy. Always good. See you next week, eh? Thank you, Alan. This is Peggy Grandy in America. Well, before we go, I will be raising this matter next week in some detail with Peggy Grandy. But under the Biden administration, many great American cities are becoming a shell of what they once were. Let me start with the West Coast. In Democrat-run Portland, Walmart has closed its final two stores in Portland due to rampant shoplifting and vandalism. In Democrat-run Seattle, Target is being ravaged by shoplifters, with one staff member telling the media that theft happens, quote, about every 10 minutes. San Francisco, once the gem of the West Coast, that's now run by the Democrats, has seen Whole Foods close its flagship store after only a year of being open. The reason? Homelessness is out of control. People are dealing and shooting up on meth, heroin and fentanyl on the streets. San Francisco. And the government seems to allow it by handing out needles to homeless junkies at taxpayers' expense. The irony, even when CNN journalists tried to report on the situation in San Francisco, they were viciously robbed. Twice. The Windy City faces the same fate. Walmart and Target have left Chicago because they lose tens of millions of dollars a year from shoplifting and vandalism. And who can blame them? The Democrats are practically condoning it. Authorities aren't prosecuting anyone who shoplifts fewer than $1,000 of goods. As a result, as a result, many Walmart stores are now looking are uh, now locking laundry detergent and underwear in security cases. You can't believe this stuff, can you? Beyond belief. The East Coast is no better. In Baltimore, there are huge riots. Businesses are being broken into and vandalised. The city's implemented a curfew to try to curtail the chaos. But the police force says there aren't enough police officers to enforce it due to a lack of funding. Who would have thought that crime would go up if you defended the police? Hello? The worst part of all of this, the same thing's happening here. This week, we saw Lydia Thorpe verbally abuse people in the streets of Melbourne. She was making fun of white men for having small penises. She even told one club goer that he was marked because he's white and dared to question her drunken tirade. The list goes on. Both Sydney and Melbourne now have drug injecting rooms. Vaccine mandates in our police forces mean we have a shortage of policemen. Recent statistics from the New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research reveal that theft from stores jumped 23.7% last year, the fastest growth in retail crime since records began in 1995. This is what happens when you have woke government. All I can say is that at least the situation here isn't as bad as it is in the United States. Remember, a United States run by an incoherent and incapable Joe Biden. At the rate we're going, though, we can't be too far behind. More of that next week. That's it from me tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night. Remember, you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6 a.m. tomorrow. That's tomorrow morning. Just search Alan Jones. That's me. I'm Alan Jones. You're watching ADH. Thank you for being with us and good night.